Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. I'm here with brothers Macaroo and brothers. Amos, looking at the African situation, the world over, clearly we have a plethora of issues to deal with. Unfortunately, it seems as if the implementation of whatever theoretical approach we may have to solving many of these problems is lacking. Dr. Barbara Sizemore years ago talked about the importance of looking at the problems, causes, solutions, and the implementation. Why do we invariably lose our focus? Why is it so difficult to do the work? Inevitably, you have to ask the question, what are you willing to sacrifice? On a personal level, I've been working with the Reed Alumni Association, predominantly black institution that exists in Belmont, North Carolina. Their history is chronicled in a book, Footprints on the Rough Side of the Mountain. When this institution, like many others, the Roney School up in Catawba County, Central, Newbold, and Lincoln County was destroyed, this left uh, hole in the psyche of many of the residents who saw the significance of that institution. You know, in many ways, the social, political movement that we refer to as integration had a negative effect on the black community. It impacted the black community negatively. It meant for us, one, the loss of Billions of dollars in projected earned income, the loss of names, emblem, symbols, Second Ward, Plato Price, York Road, Reed, Newbold, Central, Roney School. Names, symbols of these institutions once they were destroyed. What did it leave us? Left us in a situation where we were forced to assimilate via one-way busing policies. Uh, a Charlotte resident told me the mantra of that day was whites could be bused just like us. But unfortunately, uh, in most instances, the black community had to bear the brunt of this failed movement. You know, victimization by unfair disciplinary practices and exposure to hostile teachers and parents. Victimization through misclassification, special education classes, and track systems. And of course, victimization through an ignorance of our learning styles, culture, social, psychological, educational need. It, uh, my attempts in, in a small way is an effort to bring recognition to many of these heroines and heroes who have been obscured by time. And then of course they will be recognized in Belmont, North Carolina next week at the annual Black and Blue game. As the song indicates, hail to thee, Reed High School, the Reed Ram. We are placing posters all over the town of Belmont and setting up interviews with the local newspaper there. Brothers, go ahead. Abibi Fahodier, Hotep, Bado, Mapampano, African family. We are gathered during a week that uh, we celebrated 110 years of the Asajifo. Kwame Nkrumah was born September 21st, 1909. So September 21st, 
2019 would be 110 years of a, of a visionary leader. Um, and I think that that significant portions of Kwame Nkrumah's vision are a necessity today. I think there is there is some disagreement about the concept of quote unquote pan-Africanism. There are many of us who distinguish the idea of continental African unity from pan-Africanism. But but nevertheless, there there's certainly clearly a need uh, for African people to grasp the need for African unity. Um, Nkrumah recognized immediately upon Ghana gaining its independence in March of uh, 1957 when he said the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. So so he, he recognized that that the territory of Ghana, which had been carved out by Europeans at the Berlin Conference, 1884-1885 Berlin Conference, was not a, a viable entity. It was not a sustainable institution uh, as a nation state that there needed to be unity with other, other African states. And of course, he and Ahmed Sekutore and Modibo Kieta of Mali tried to set an example by forming the Ghana Guinea Mali Union. Uh, regional uh, integration as a, as a as a model for other states to follow. Uh, the uh, the union fell apart. It obviously came under intense attack by the imperialists, particularly the U.S. CIA, which overthrew Nkrumah in. Uh, 1966 via Operation Cold Chop, but but beyond beyond the continental aspects, uh, and Krumah had had a broader idea of of what it meant to be an African, and he said all people of African descent, whether they live in North or South America, the Caribbean or any part of the world, are Africans and belong to the African nation. So I think that's an idea that he got from uh, Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, and and he and he and he carried it forth. Um, there are many people who are so quick to criticize these young African countries, and and these countries are you know by world standards very 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 young. I mean, Nkrumah was overthrown within less than 10 years of, of uh, Ghana's quote-unquote independence. And there are a lot of people who've never even run an organization criticizing somebody that was trying to run a country, which was uh, immediately under intense pressure from the, uh, from the former colonialists and the imperialist powers. And, you know, one of the things that he said, those who judge us merely by the heights we've achieved would do well to remember the depths from which we started. Mm. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, that's a critical aspect when we look at, when we look at any leader, any, any organization, any country in Africa, you got, you, we have to realize that uh, the, the United States considers his birthday to be 1776. In less than 100 years, the United States was engaged in a civil war that cost between the cost of lives of between 600,000 and 800,000 people. I mean, the, 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 these are part of the growing pains of any nation, and and these African nations, which are young by by you know today's standards, I mean. You know, Zimbabwe is a is a very young nation. You know, what's known as South Africa or Zania, very, very, very young nations. Namibia, very young. These are young nations by world standards. And they, they, they take a lot of criticism for people who really don't, uh, you know, don't have the foggiest idea of what it's like to try to run a country. And particularly when you consider that Nkrumah 
Patrice Lumumba, Secretary Modibo Kieta, Julius Nyeri, all these guys are operating within the context of the Cold War, where they're, they're, there's a, this, this gigantic fight for spheres of influence between the United States and the Soviet Union. And a lot of them were just not able to play the Cold War card as masterfully as Dr. Fidel Castro Ruz played it. He's certainly the model for, for being able to play the Cold War card in order to give his country time to develop. You know, Kwame, the uh, revolutionary ancestor Kwame Ture always talked about seize, hold, develop. Seize, hold, develop. You have to seize the land. Then you have to be able to hold it. That means you got to be able to militarily defend it and then develop it. So we have enough. We, have, we go through extreme difficulty seizing. Mm. Holding becomes very, 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 very difficult when you consider the array, the, the way these, you know, Europeans can fight some god-awful blood-gushing wars against one another. But when it comes to African people, they always find a way to unify. There are a lot of people right now confused about the uh, nationalistic movements that are taking place throughout Europe. And they say, look, they're breaking apart. Yeah, you think they're breaking apart? Let Africa start talking about unity and see how quick they break apart. <laughs> uh, he said, I am not African because I was born in Africa, but because Africa was born in me. Once again, this is the concept that we are one people, as Garvey said, one God, one aim, one destiny. So, uh, you know, we posted uh, uh, some things about him on uh, on our Facebook page, and I, I posted uh, some, some additional information on my blog, Makaru Speaks. It's my position that neocolonialism is the bane of Africa. If chattel slavery was once the bane of Africa and colonialism was once the bane of Africa, now the bane of Africa is neocolonialism. And Krumah says the essence of neocolonialism is that the state which is, which is subject to it is in theory independent and has all the outward trappings of international sovereignty. In reality, its economic system and thus its political policy is directed from outside. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book of titled Neocolonialism, the Last Stage of Imperialism. It may be, I mean, these Europeans <laughs> Have, have ways of recalibrating, uh, re-engineering, retooling, you know, their systems of oppression. But nevertheless, it certainly has been very effective. Uh, I think the, I think one reason the French, the French and the British gave up their states, whereas the Portuguese fought to keep theirs, and obviously the, uh, the white supremacists of, uh, that controlled Namibia, the people of Namibia had to fight. Uh, Robert Mugabe and the brothers in, in, in Zimbabwe had to fight. And South Africa, under the, under the leadership the, of Chris Haney, was attempting to fight when they uh, cut a, a deal, a deal with the devil, some people might say. So, um, you know, if we, we, we have to think, so what were the British and the French thinking? And what I, what, what I believe they were thinking is that they had faith that their systems of education and their systems of reward and punishment would create a comprador class mm -hmm. of black Europeans of ne or Negro Europeans, Negropeans or whatever you want to call them, who would actually carry on the system of, of domination, of exploitation, of oppression, you know, without them being physically present. And, you know, this is what Nkrumah, you know, came to, came to recognize. Well, he recognized it actually even before he was overthrown, what was taking place because he was getting so much resistance. Uh, they agreed to form the Organization of African Unity, but it was more of an organization of African unity in name than it was in practice. And so that's why, that's why you know, the Ghana-Guinea-Mali Union was an attempt to say, okay, this, 
this is how we practice it. Okay, if we don't want to form one federal government, at least we can form regional governments. And so this is why I think his vision is 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 necessary. Um, we don't agree that people who are not Africans are Pan-Africanists. That, that includes Muammar Gaddafi, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and whoever else you want to consider. I mean, you know, the, the Africans in Sudan identify more with the Arabs than they do with the Africans. Um, but, um, you know, this is, this is where we are. And um, I just want to say that in the context of Kwame Nkrumah, you know, I attended the day, the first day of the R400 summit. This was, this is a movement that has been launched by Bishop Claude Alexander, who is the CEO of the Park Ministries. Uh, Dr. Alexander was able to do something that not many African Americans have has been able to do. Malcolm X was able to speak to the African, uh, the Organization of African Unity which is now the African Union, this past February, uh, as a result of his relationship with the president of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, Dr. Alexander was able to speak to the African Union and propose this idea of having an African-African-American economic trading center that would be here in Charlotte at, at the uh, Park Expo. And so uh, the African Union endorsed this idea. And right now the, the, uh, the, the summit is going on that will hopefully move in that direction and move in the direction of something that will be beneficial to the masses of African people because we see there's, there are many problems that, that our people have with the current crop crop of leaders, so-called leaders on the African continent, and we certainly need something that's going to benefit our people. So next week after uh, I've completed attending the, the summit and, and write my article for the uh, county news, I I'm, I'm, uh, actually got a press pass uh, from uh, Sister Fran Farrah, the publisher of the county news. So I'm a, I'll write an article, and then I'll give a report next week on uh, – on this summit, but I just wanted to mention that within the context of of Kwame Nkrumah because it, it it is something that has some potential. Yeah, brother, I think that's that's positive. That's real work that you are putting in for our people, not only keeping us aware of what's going on, but actively using your skills to communicate what you see and providing a report that can hopefully hopefully be beneficial. And this is a good this is a good project, like you said, that's needed and that hopefully will benefit Africans who are looking to uh trade with Africans in the diaspora or African Americans. Yeah, let me just give you one example of Brother Amos um that they mentioned today. African Americans are buying shea butter from the Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> African Americans are buying African clothing that uh, that is made in China. And 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 we 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 have African entrepreneurs, particularly African women that are producing shea butter and African women use shea butter for all kinds of things. It's a it's an untapped market. Why why should we be buying this from the Chinese? This is something that's produced on the African continent. Who who are better weavers and designers of cloth than African people? Uh-huh. And 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 Africans are buying so you know, Dr. Clark told us we could at least make our own underwear and socks, right? That's what Dr. Clark told us. So shea butter may sound like something real simple, but but all economics has to have some kind of base, some kind of footing. And these, this is something very simple 
that we could do because, you know, the, this is a product that a lot of our people use. There's no, no reason for the dollars to be going to China. Well, it's like we talked about weeks ago with everything that's going on in Zimbabwe and the economic situation there. If you can trade with African-Americans or with other African countries, then it lessens the power of the sanctions that these European countries and Western countries put on these African countries. So that's why it's also important um, not looking at it from an individual standpoint, like, oh, this is an opportunity for us to get rich, but it's an opportunity for us to strengthen each other. As Garvey said, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad. So, yeah. I mean, this is this is how you create a system that allows you to garner that economic support and give economic support where it's needed. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, brothers, we uh going back to Dr. Amos Wilson, this great brother, you know, part of the problem at the rudimentary level is that we do not see ourselves as a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, individualism run amok. You know, and another key variable that he used to talk about, uh, you know, is the fact that you know, these systems, as you alluded to, brother almost, change in many instances when we transform ourselves. You know, and sadly, we caught up in a paradigm of trying, and you've mentioned this as well, alluded to it, espoused this idea, this inculcated view that we have that we have to change the European <laughs> vis-a-vis <laughs> transforming ourselves. And consequently, you know, the system will be transformed almost overnight. And he used to give, you know, just numerous examples, but, you know, the falsification of African-American consciousness, you know, we cannot be in the situation we are in unless our consciousness has been turned upside down and inside out. You know, Malcolm talked about it and many others, you know, and, um, you know, try to articulate it verbatim, you know, once you change your thought pattern, you change your philosophy. Right. You know, then your behavioral pattern, but, you know, ultimately, power's in the mind. Even the uh, wishy-washy godfather of soul, (laughs) James Brown, you know, he used to talk about what we need is a revolution of the mind. You know, just... (laughs) So many explanations to really describe, you know, why we're in this predicament that we're in. Um, I I think the most critical statement, once again, was made by Dr. Marimba Ani when she talked about the value and the usages of culture. What are we dealing with? What kind of Africans are you trying to produce? You know, um, you know, culture, of course. Dr. Donnie espoused the idea is the Petri dish by which you produce Africans. Hmm. You know, McCarroll talked about <laughs> neocolonialism. You know what we did? We talk, we, we are producing white supremacists in blackface, you know, who in too many instances and at various levels on the street, in the suites, uh, heads of state, Speaking of that, that's a good segue to this next story. Go ahead, brother. Down in the Congo, San Marino, the Republic of San Marino, seizes $19 million from the Congo president, Dennis Ngueso, or Ngueso, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. Um, apparently, he was depositing this money in a Italian uh, yeah. bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, they seized, they seized the money, um, saying that you know it was money that was that was stolen. Uh, it's interesting that you know these. I look at this from two 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 sides or two aspects. On one hand, you you have a corrupt leader who's taking money from the Congo, money that should be going to help the people in the country. 
and he's depositing money in different bank accounts. Some of the bank accounts belonging to his relatives. Uh, he's living a lavish lifestyle. Uh, it says, according to this article here, he spent $114,000 on crocodile skin shoes. <laughs> My lord. 2.3 million splurged on watches and hotel stays in Paris that cost up to $11,000 a night. Mm, mm, mm. So, here on one hand, you have this corrupt leader. Uh, we just talked about neocolonialism and the puppets that act as a neocolonial gatekeepers for a lot of these European countries, especially France. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have you know, this Italian bank uh, in San Marino. Now, what are they going to do with the money that they seize? Of course, they're going to keep it. That's what they say. They're not going to give it back to the, con- the Congolese government and make sure it gets distributed back to the people that it actually belongs to. Right. So they're just as crooked as this neocolonial leader, Dennis Ngesso, in the Congo. Yeah, the money should be put in a trust fund to be distributed, you know, to the masses of uh, the people. Now, now we're talking here about the Republic of Congo, formerly known as Congo Brazzaville, which was a French colony versus uh, most of our conversations here on African Liberation Media have been about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, which was achieved independence under Patrice Lumumba. Two, two separate countries, same name, uh, geographically side by side in central west central africa and um the republic of congo at one time was considered to be a very progressive country at one at one time it's the home of the great african scholar theophile obanga um so the the money should be put in a trust for it 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 wouldn't do any good you know for these thieves in europe this tiny I don't even know what is it a country San Marino. It, it's a it, republic. It's totally surrounded by Italy, right? Uh, and they they've seized the money. If they return the money to uh, to to Brazzaville now, it would just wind up back in the same hands. So they don't really need to do that. But it should go in a trust fund. The, the Europeans have no they they have no rights to it. The the money belongs to to that masses of African people of the Republic of Congo. so And also, I mean, what made them decide to seize the money at this point? What is he doing or not doing for them that made them want to act to seize the money? It says that this guy is one of the longest serving leaders in Africa having come to power in 1979. Right. Uh, it says that uh, he lost his job in the country's first multi-party elections in 1992, but returned to power in 1997 after a brief civil war, which he was backed by Angolan troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French-trained former paratrooper has been dogged by corruption allegations with, acu- with accusations that he plundered the state's finances in order to buy cars and expensive homes in France. And it says the Congo is one of the biggest oil producers in sub-Saharan Africa, where nearly half of its people live in poverty, according to the World Bank. Right, right, right. Here, here, here you, here, here you have once again, you know, a country with, uh, you know, extreme wealth, extreme wealth, and run by ethical people. With, with a more of an egalitarian uh, attitude versus, you know, a, you know, a narcissistic uh, greed, uh, avarice, the people of this country could be living some of the, one of the highest standards of living in the world. One of the highest standards of living in the world if it was properly managed. And this is why I keep saying, and I say it all day today, <laughs> and I keep saying it, neocolonialism is the bane of Africa and until African people, and hopefully, you know, we, we, we hope that our youth, we hope that our youth are, will, 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 will somehow absorb the spirit 
you know, Irvin Krumah, Secretary Ray, Patrice Lumumba, Amakar Cabral, Julius Nayeri, Thomas Sankara, Winnie Mandela, and overthrow these people. Well, that's why they killed Patrice Lumumba so quick, because that was their biggest fear, was him turning the tables in the richest country in Africa, in the Congo. That was the biggest fear. So here you have this guy, now he's in the Congo, and he's the leader, a puppet to the French. He's going there spending all his money in the French economy, continuously making them rich, taking the money away from the people, and giving it to the whites <laughs> who would suffer if it wasn't for this wealth. Look, Europe would be the world's largest ghetto. Without Africa, Europe would be the world's largest ghetto. They produce nothing. They have, you know, some oil in the North Sea. You know, Russia has, has uh, you know, a lot of minerals, but most of it is in Asia. Uh, so uh, Europe would be the world's largest ghetto. Mm-hmm. It, it just a continue. You know, African countries are still, you know, paying debt. You know, paying paying debt. I mean, and this is what Sankara was speaking all always speaking about. We he said we should stop paying our stop paying this debt. Trade amongst one another, and we don't need these people. And right. How can you pay debt off something that other people stole? There should be no debt. That's why Sankara said we shouldn't pay it. That's exactly, you know, that's why, see, these, these, these revolutionary brothers like Thomas Sankara, Chris Haney, Steve Biko, they can emerge, but it's difficult to protect them. Largely because you got so many traitors, race traitors, who will kill their own people. I, I was talking to Dr. Muhammad Kamara today. He's the he's the chair of the um, African Studies Department at Howard. And I don't know, almost you may know this. I don't. I, I don't. Howard may be the only HBCU in the country that has an African Studies Department and an African American Studies Department. Mm. But uh, so we were talking about. Uh, I had a chance to have a really good conversation with this brother after he spoke. And so we were talking about Guinea because he's from Guinea and. We were talking about, you know, Secretore, Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Ture. And we got to Amakar Cabral, and we were discussing. Uh, so I asked him, I said, uh, you know, talk to me about the assassination of Amakar Cabral, a revolutionary, okay, no question. The Portuguese manipulated divisions within their party, the PAIGC, between the brothers and sisters from Cape Verde and the, and the brothers and sisters from Guinea-Bissau. And they were able to convince some race traders from Cape Verde, which Cabral was born on the Cape Verde Islands, but, you know, it's, quote-unquote, one country, and they and his own people within his party killed him. His own people, you know, here's one of the most brilliant minds, but not only a brilliant mind, here's a brother that would take an AK-47 and go into the trenches and fight the Portuguese. And you kill your own brother. So... <laughs> It's difficult. It, 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 and this is what we have to seize, hold, develop. Hold, the whole part of it is being able to protect our people. And I hate to say it, but oh we're going to have to crack a lot of African heads, too. You got to do like Narmer. Mm-hmm. Because it's a lot of black people. Come on. That have historically and still presently side in favor of Europeans against their own people. Deep psychosis, brother. Right now you got a black Texas Ranger. Oh, Lord. Come on. 
who has said publicly that he believes Amber Geiger, the police officer in Texas, who shot and killed the brother who was in his own apartment. She rose up in his apartment, and her excuse was that she thought that she was walking into her apartment and he had broken in. Killed this brother. Now, this black Texas Ranger is saying that she didn't commit a crime. <laughs> now, I want you to really process how this whole picture is set up. When people who are in power can create laws that say certain people have the right and authority to kill under certain circumstances and legally get away with it. That's the same legal garbage that they use to justify certain people legally being able to own other people. Mm -hmm. So at what point do you say that these people's laws are twisted and just need to be totally overthrown? Because you can't justify someone having a right to take somebody else's life and do no time for it. Mm. But yet this person is gone forever. That doesn't make any common sense at all. Now, we're not talking about self-defense or anything like that. You know, that's the law of nature. People have the right to defend themselves from being harmed. But we're talking about a woman who went inside an innocent person's apartment that was not a threat to her and shot this brother, killed him, and now is on the brink of possibly getting off for it. Do you have the quote? Did you pull up the quote there to read exactly what the uh, the Texas Ranger said? He said, he said, I believe that she did perceive him as a deadly threat. I don't have the whole quote. Okay. But essentially he testified on her behalf the way that, you know, the police officers always do in saying that, you know, she feared for her life and that, she didn't intentionally go in there and try to kill him for per se like first degree or second degree murder. But He's, at the end of the day, it's still it's still manslaughter. The man's mm -hmm. dead. The man is dead mm -hmm. because of her. So she committed a crime. And he said no crime was committed. In his opinion. In his opinion. Mm -hmm. Now this is a Negro saying this now. Exactly. This ain't the whites defending themselves, they get a Negro that they handpicked to get up there because they know that that's going to roll over better on the black jurors, the black judge, and on the public. Because then they can point and say, you see now, even your own was said. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That she didn't commit a crime. Yeah, Donald Trump didn't say it. But at what point, at what point do you rise above the European law, the white law, and say that we have the power to dictate what's right and what's wrong. We have to create our own system mm -hmm. where we have the power to dictate what's legally and lawfully right or wrong. And that system can't be here. It cannot be here because yeah. we don't control the system here. Mm-hmm. So you at the mercy of somebody else's will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Powerless. Yeah, our lives hang on a thread, literally. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, time to repatriate. Yeah, you know, and see, the the the, the way the way the law. The way the, the way the laws are applied in a, in many instances, it's almost as if we have never moved past eighteen fifty seven. We haven't. In many ways, I mean, it's almost as if in in every one of these instances, 
Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney is sitting there. It's almost as if he's sitting there in the courtroom saying, black people have no rights, which white people are bound to respect. And in, 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 in so many instances, because... They're just using different words to say it. They're just, mm. they just using different words to say it because, you know, he... The uh, the the email that I sent you all had you know had in which I yeah, I didn't I didn't pull it up to to bring in here but he was talking about that to to me the, the prosecution in this case has been horribly weak kind of reminds me of the prosecution of of Zimmerman and it'll be amazing to me if they get a conviction out of this I mean I. I I hope I'm wrong. I, I I don't mind being proven wrong. But uh, one of the things the prosecution has said was they were talking about the differences between she lived directly above him on the fourth floor. He lived on the third floor. Unfortunately, for some reason, he had his door partially cracked. That's how she got in rather than having it locked. And they were talking about the fact that he had a red mat in front of his door and she didn't. And the Texas Ranger was saying, no, that ain't the way it was set up then. They added all of those things. And, I mean, it was like this guy was just hired. I mean, you know, I mean, what did she do? The Negro guard, though. <laughs> so, so, you know, she, so she comes in and he says, that she that he thought that she thought he was an intruder in her house. The man was sitting in his apartment eating ice cream. And he got up when he what would anybody do? You here comes a stranger walking in your house. And the Texas Ranger said that when this man got up in his house and moved toward this woman, and we don't know if that actually happened or not, he said. She was justified in thinking he posed a threat to her. So if the world, if the roles were reversed, let's think about this now. If the roles were reversed, and this white female police officer is sitting on her couch eating ice cream, this black man walks in, believing that he's in his apartment. She charges him. He fires a gun. Do you believe that this Negro is gonna come out and say that he didn't commit a crime? No. What are we, I mean, what are we dealing with under the European structure that is was set up to benefit them? It's always been set up to benefit them. Well, you know, brother, he talked about Roger B. Taney, 1857. Black man has no rights that any white man is bound to respect. You know, we're talking about the power differential. It's the same now as it was back then. You know, Muhammad Noor just got prosecuted 12 years in prison. Exactly. For shooting a white woman. He's a police officer. Right. Did he perceive a threat? He said he felt for his life, feared for his life. His life didn't matter. His partner also said that he acted in a way that he would have acted, but he still was found guilty. He, he's, mm -hmm. in, he's in jail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's in jail. It has, this has nothing to do with whether you are a, a black police officer or you know, whether you think you're gonna just skate because the situation may benefit you. This is <coughs> clear, cut, and dry, either white or black issue mm -hmm. and it, the white privilege that these people have under the laws that benefit them allows this to continuously happen mm -hmm. it's just like the uh the situation that's down there in uh orlando where the young girl six-year-old six-year-old girl mm -hmm. was arrested and handcuffed by police officers taken down to the station and fingerprinted and charged for Supposedly throwing a, a temper tantrum. It's ridiculous, bro. Six now, years old. It's yeah. got to the point where we can't even, <clears throat> we can't protect our daughters from sexual abuse. 
And we can't protect our daughters from being arrested in a system, a wicked system, that would put handcuffs on a six-year-old child. And, 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 and the, the little girl was having an issue. Okay, she's six years old. Children have issues. And an administrator, I don't know if it was a male or female, put his hands on the little girl. And when this administrator did, the little girl kicked the person. So why are you, why are you trying to physically restrain this six-year-old? Is, is there nobody in the school that you could say, look, just sit here and calm down. I'm going to get somebody to talk to you, and we're going to talk this out. Now, this same cop, this same police officer, arrested an eight-year-old boy the same day. This is a guy who has been fired from one police force and uh, for using excessive force. He had, there was a man that he was arresting. The man was down and he repeatedly tased him. But just like the guy that, uh, that killed Mike Brown had been fired from one police force, the guy that, that killed uh, Tamir Rice had been fired from one police force and hired by the police force in Cleveland, even though this guy scored something like, um, I want to say 46 out of 100 on the cognitive skills test. 46 out of 100. And they keep getting, they keep getting jobs. They keep getting jobs. And uh, the system just keeps protecting them. And, it, I mean, apparently this is normal behavior because there's a report that said in 2012 in Florida, 100 children, at least 100 children between the ages of five and nine were arrested by police officers. Between five and nine? Between the ages of five and nine. And I bet you if you did a racial breakdown. 98% of them would probably be black. I get, mm -hmm. If you did a racial breakdown. And you see... To put handcuffs on a child like that, and not only not only are, are they being charged and it's on their record, but think about the emotional scarring that's taking place to their mental psyche, knowing that they've been arrested, you know, and they've been treated like this. That should be considered child abuse. They try to get on. African American people for discipline their disciplining their children, you know, say, oh, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, discipline children this way or that way, or it could be considered child abuse. Well, when you physically try to strangle somebody or hold them down or put them in handcuffs, that's considered child abuse. Morally indefensible, brother. And we can come back to this, but it's open season, carte blanche as it relates to black lives, clearly. And, and, and what's my fundamental crime? You know, being alive. You know, in my opinion, there's a lot of uh, discussion, somewhat... Um, people in a state of euphoria because of the recent impeachment proceedings that are taking place. But I was sharing with a brother today in Gaston County that this gentleman, and we don't know the outcome, is not gonna go out quietly. This does not bode well for African people given his tendency to incite violence amongst the warring tribes and the knowledge that the European has that he can murder us at will, that's what we've been talking about, and be exonerated. You're talking about a system, not only of injustice, but a white working class that's heavily armed. You know, millions 
of assault rifles, AK-47s, AR-15s, you know, and this gentleman with his tendencies to, uh, you say, incite violence. You know, I, I mean, it's... We got to just ask the question, and this is this is a message particularly to my warriors, all of the warriors that listen to this podcast. <laughs> Our warriors, brother, are unorganized, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is a... Sad, man. This is a... This is a... Uh, a message to the to to the warriors. What is it gonna take for the African man to be fed up with this system and do something about it, brother? When you have our daughters being manhandled by police, you ever seen the movie A Time to Kill? I have never seen it because I can't handle it, brother. Well, in the Time to Kill. Samuel Jackson, who was playing the role of this black man whose daughter had been raped and urinated on by these two white males. And these two white males were going to court. They were charged. But more than likely, they were going to get off for this crime that they committed. Samuel Jackson refused to allow this to happen. He refused to wait on the prosecutors. He refused to wait on the jurors and the judge to decide what they felt like was justice for the actions that these two white males committed. And if you watch the movie, he took matters into his own hands. Yeah, Hollywood. It's Hollywood, but at the yeah. same time, you got to take, sometimes you got to take a message out of things that come from different different places. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, yeah, of course, yeah. you, you know, you go on, and then the Hollywood aspect of it to me is you got the white lawyer that, you know, gets him off in the end. So it makes the it hero. like, it makes Super it like hero. the white man is the hero. Yes. But at the same time, what that represents is real black manhood. Yes, sir. The being willing, being willing to, even though he couldn't physically protect his daughter that day. After it happened, and he found out, found out that it happened, he didn't wait for somebody else to offer a solution for his daughter. He went out and said, "I'm going to take matters into my own hands." Like Russell Maroon Schultz, yes, sir. Decided, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to administer the justice. Yeah, you know, like Doc told us, though, brother. No man is free until he overcomes his fear of death. Hmm. That's true. You know, the minute the doctor told us you lose your fear of death, you free. And you know, it's it, it, it's you know it, it's it's sad, brother, uh, that. <laughs> We caught up in what we call fear-driven defeatism. I think it's George Jackson, doggone it, who said that uh, our nervous system is in the hands of the oppressor. Hmm. In too many instances when I read letters from a soul dad prison, I found him lamenting the spirit death that his father had encountered. Mm. I mean, I'm getting chill bumps just reflecting back, brother. Mm. And, uh, you know, when it's, you know, we're talking about Black August when John Jackson uh, captured these Europeans from the Marion County Courthouse. George's reply was, what took us so long? That's his kid brother now. Mm, 17 years old. What took us so long to produce these warriors? See, you know, I'm just venting more than anything else because, I mean, heck, you know, I have been socialized too in the system. What will it take, bro? I mean, even during the time of 
my grandmother Susie's life span before I had my Earth Day. You know, just the image, brother, of a black man walking down the street, still bleeding from a castrator's knife. Hmm. Mm. You know, your question, bro, that is a the key question. Well, you you know, know, I mean, I mean, hold yeah. that, bro, hold that point. What will it take, bro? And and see, the thing of it is, this is what we have to understand: is that you you ha- there is there is a process by which a revolutionary consciousness come is on, developed. Come on. Okay, so Woo. so you know the reason there's a reason why. Uh, we were able to produce a Russell Maroon Schultz, you know, and a Sada Shakur, right? A Sundiata Akoli, a Matula mm. Shakur, right? A Jonathan Jackson, a George Jackson, and and what it what it took was the the struggle the that that started off as just demands for reforms and the absolute violence that was meted out by people demanding just simple, really, really, really simple things. You you, you think about Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robinson, mm-hmm. Cynthia Wesley, Virgil Ware, and Johnny Robinson all being killed I was just about to go there. In in Birmingham in 1963, and and Sarah Collins losing an eye because she was the fifth little girl that survived the bombing. Why? Kill for what? Because they were demonstrating to just have the right access to public accommodations and and the white, the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic, respond with just absolute barbarism, barbaric violence, and as that is taking place, the Maroon Schultz, the Mamia Abu Jamal's, the Jonathan, maybe Jonathan was too young, but George. These guys are like looking at this saying, how much more of this are we going to take? See, without that struggle, without that, then you don't get to a Maroon show. Without Huey Newton and Bobby Seale forming the Black Panther Party saying, okay, all all we want is self-defense. They didn't say, you know, let's form guerrilla units and attack a police station. They said, we're just going to patrol the community and protect our people from being brutalized. That's why we need more DNA evidence of a lot of these warriors, because I guarantee you a lot of these warriors got some Coromante DNA in their bloodline. Probably. It's it's always been Africans that fought. That, that 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 offer resistance. Exactly. Yes, sir. First yep. line of resistance. Mm-hmm. And we need more warriors to do that. Mm-hmm. We run a, a little bit long time. Check us out on our website, AfricanLiberationMedia.com. You can also tune in to us on social media at African Liberation Media on Facebook and Instagram. A BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. BB for It's been a pleasure. Power or the lack of power. I'm going to repeat this, power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. 
The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.